Welcome to POP, the sermon podcast for Peace Lutheran Church in Gehenna, with Pastors Doug Warburton and Tony Katko. Well, good evening again, everybody. Uh, My name is Pastor Tony Katko. I'm glad to be with you to worship this evening, and I love when we get to celebrate First Communion uh, with the four of you this evening. And are you guys ready for your part? Okay, you have to wait until the end of the sermon. So you have to stay awake until at least the end of the sermon. Can you do that? Good, okay. And if not, parents, grandparents, nudge them awake. All right, so I love that we get to celebrate First Communion and it makes sense to do that on Thursday of Holy Week because of course it was on Thursday of Holy Week that Jesus had the Last Supper. But the name Maundy Thursday, it has nothing to do with communion. And here's what I've always thought is kind of funny about Monday Thursday. The reading, the traditional reading that I just shared is from John's gospel. And John's gospel is the one gospel that does not actually share Jesus giving out communion. It's not in John. It's in the other three, but not in John. No, Pastor Doug said that we get this word Monday from the Latin word mandatum. And mandatum, of course, means commandment or mandate, you listen, good job, or you knew Latin, and it's the commandment that Jesus gives in John's gospel to love one another as I have loved you. And he does that right after he washes the disciples' feet. Now, I've heard that it's been a while since we've done a foot washing here at Peace, and so a quick raise of hands, who wants to wash each other's feet right now in worship? Who... If you saw us bring out some towels and a basin of water, would pretend to go to the bathroom and leave right now. <laughs> Come on, yep, exactly. So I, I was thinking about this, but then uh, Q Jones, who's our worship arts director, he said, you can do a foot washing if you want, but then I won't be there. <laughs> True story, so thanks Q, we're not doing a foot washing. Instead, I want to walk through this chapter, chapter 13, in John's gospel. And I wanna do something a little bit different. I'm gonna push you, because we are not the kind of church that expects people to bring your Bibles to worship. Some churches do that, we are not one of those. But we are going to go through basically this entire chapter, and I think there's a better chance of all of you staying awake if you open up an actual Bible. So, there are Bibles in your pews, and I'm gonna make it easy on you. That's the page number that you're gonna go to, page 876. And if you want to just pretend to follow along, there's this thing called the internet and you can pretend to scan that QR code and go to a free Bible app and download that or just Google it, John chapter 13. So let's all go there or at least pretend to go to John chapter 13 together. I'm gonna be using the NRSV which is the same as the Pew Bibles, but if not, if you've got some other translation, that's fine too. So we're starting with John chapter 13 in verse one. Now before the festival of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, one of the things I love about looking at the different gospels is that all these gospel writers, they tell the story of Jesus just a little bit differently. 
That's why we have four different ones in our Bible. And John, one of the things that John does is he wants to make it clear that Jesus is very much in control. So you see this throughout John that Jesus always knows what's going on. He knows what's going to happen next. Because John wants to show us that with Jesus, everything is very intentional. So even when things seem really awful or seem really random in the life of Jesus, we know that God is still at work behind the scenes. Now, I love that, and it's really comforting, but we also have to be careful with that kind of understanding of God, especially when it comes to the cross. Because sometimes Christians will talk about the cross, and without meaning to do it, they'll say, that they'll paint this picture of God like God wants blood. God demands someone needs to suffer. Someone needs to be punished, and let's have Jesus be punished and suffer. See, and that sounds a whole lot like human beings putting our own desire for violence and vengeance on God instead of reflecting what God actually wants. See, what I see on the cross is God taking the worst things that human beings do to one another and saying even that can be redeemed. Even when someone tortures and murders an innocent person, even that can lead to an empty tomb. So according to John, Jesus knows that his life is about to come to an end, and it's not because God wants him to suffer. It's because all these people in power want to work to protect what they have, and they're working out of fear and violence. So they're going to arrest Jesus and kill him, and he knows it. Now think about how powerful that last line in that first verse is. Look at that. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He knows exactly what's going to happen still. He loves them. And then if you look at verse 2, we see how far that love goes. The devil had already decided that Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, would betray Jesus. Now let's pause here for a second. Because in our church, at least, in our tradition, we don't talk about the devil that often, do we? Now, if you look at the New Testament, the devil and demons, they were definitely a part of that New Testament worldview. But today, we usually think of them a little bit differently. And it's okay for us to have different thoughts on that. But for me, there's still something important about pointing out that the devil was at work here. You see, it acknowledges that there are forces in this world at work beyond just ourselves. So does that mean there's a literal sentient being plotting evil? Maybe, maybe not. But what I do know is that when people do evil things, when people hurt one another, there is usually some kind of individual choice involved, but it is always more complicated than that. I mean, think of some of the big sins at work in our world today. Racism, sexism, all the other isms and phobias, we learn them because they're part of our world, they're part of our culture. Maybe they're part of how we were raised in our family. They're part of our experiences growing up. Now, that doesn't mean we're powerless to do anything against them, but there are these systems of evil at work in the world around us. And they have real power over us. So when we look at this story, when Judas betrays Jesus, John says, and the devil was at work. The reasons behind this betrayal are complicated. It's not just, oh, here's a really bad guy. Here was this moral failure. 
It's more complicated than that. So we're only two verses into this chapter, and we've seen that Jesus knows the crucifixion is coming, and he knows it's not just about these nameless villains. One of his disciples, one of his 12 closest friends is going to betray him. So look what happens next, second half of verse 2. And during supper, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, he knows what's going to happen. He got up from supper, took off his outer robe, and tied a towel around himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was tied around him. Now, even today, the idea of foot washing is really awkward. That's why nobody raised their hand when asked if you wanted to do it. But picture what it would have been like in ancient times. If you wanted to go anywhere, unless you were really wealthy, you always walked. And in the Bible, you were walking in sandals in the desert. And it's not like people showered every morning. Hygiene standards were much different than what they were today. I think we should always remember this when you read from the Bible. There was a smell about the ancient world. There was no deodorant in daily showers, right? People had a smell to them. And then picture their feet. It would have been disgusting. Now, hospitality in the Middle East is still important today, and it was really important in the day of Jesus. So if you went to someone's house, like for dinner, a good host would be expected to provide some water and a towel for the guests to wash their own feet. And if that host was really wealthy, they might have a lowly female slave who could come and wash those guests' feet. One of the commentaries I read on this pointed out that to the disciples, what Jesus is doing here is putting himself in the most humiliating position that they could imagine. Only a lowly female slave would ever wash someone else's feet. A free person would never do something like that. So with that context, it makes sense what Peter does when he pushes back. So look back in your Bibles, verse 6. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered, you do not know what I am doing now, but later you will understand and Peter said to him, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no share with me. Now watch what Peter does next with verse 9. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Now this sounds kind of silly, but you know what Peter's doing here? He's offering Jesus a way to act a little more dignified. You don't have to act like one of those lowly slave girls, Jesus. You can just baptize me. Just wash me all over. That's something that a dignified religious leader can do. It shows that Peter's missing the point. Jesus is showing them you have to be able to set your dignity aside. All the hierarchies that are around us. All these rules of who belongs where in the world and who's above who. All of that Jesus wants them to let go of. So Jesus said to him, one who is bathed does not need to wash except for the feet, but is entirely clean. And you are clean, though not all of you. For he knew who was to betray him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. 
And then just in case this demonstration wasn't clear, Jesus goes on to explain it in verse 12. After he had washed their feet, he put on his robe, he reclined again and said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've set you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. You're supposed to live by this example, even when it makes you really uncomfortable. And remember that Jesus washes everybody's feet, even Judas, that the text makes clear. He knows that Judas is going to betray him and he still washes his feet. This kind of love of Jesus, it's not just for people who deserve it. It's not just for the people we like and have affection toward, it's for everybody. Now, if you look at your Bible, we won't read all this, but the next part, it's all about Judas's betrayal. And all the Gospels tell some version of this. Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And they can't believe it. They look at one another, no, are you serious? Surely not I, is it you? Uh, who is it? And then Jesus calls out Judas and says, all right, Judas, go and do what you have to do. And then the Gospels, they tell us that the other disciples don't really get it. Maybe they don't wanna get it yet. They don't wanna believe that their friend could do this, so they don't understand yet. And then in verse 27, again, we're told that it's Satan, the devil, is at work here. So remember, Judas makes a choice, but there are these powers of evil and fear that are greater than just one person. Notice how Jesus responds. He doesn't fight evil with evil. Here's where we get that command, the, the mandatum in verse 34. Go down to that. I give you a new commandment that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now we should remember here that loving one another was not a new command at all. Actually, there's a law that says exactly that. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's back in Leviticus. And Jesus says at another point, all of the laws, they all come down to loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. That's not a new command. What's new is loving one another as I have loved you. It's the example of loving like Jesus. That's what's new here. And what does that look like? It looks like washing each other's feet. It looks like being willing to let go of your dignity, letting go of your power, letting go of your privilege, showing mercy to one another. It looks like welcoming everyone to this table of grace, no exceptions. Do you know what it means to be welcomed at this table? Maybe some of you don't remember, but I know four of you know exactly what it means. Are you ready? You are all still awake. Congratulations. The four of you about to receive communion, you have been patient. Now I want you to tell everyone what you have learned. What are the three things that Jesus tells us when we come up to communion? Jesus says, I... All right, now, real loud for all the people in the back. What are the three things that Jesus says to us when we come to communion? Jesus 
Yes, you got it. You pass, you are allowed to take communion. <laughs> yeah. I love you. I accept you. I forgive you, all of you, no matter what. Amen.